Chapter Three of The Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. Chapter Three. For two days it had been raining, heavy straight rain. From my window at Galway's I could see the fields round the village full of pools and zigzags of water, as if they'd been covered with a shiny, gray veil that was suddenly pulled off and had caught in the stubble and been torn to rags saturday morning the weather broke but the sky was still overcast and the air had that sort of warm muggy breathlessness that comes after rain that was november the twentieth it was eleven o'clock and i was sitting at the switchboard looking out at the streets all puddles and ruts when i got a call from the dalzells a place near the junction for maple shade now you needn't get preachy and tell me it's against the rules to listen suspension and maybe discharge i know that better than most didn't the roof over my head and the food in my mouth depend on me doing my work according to orders but the fact is that this time i was keyed up so high i got past being cautious when a call came for maple shade i listened listened hard with all my ears what did i expect to hear i don't know exactly it might have been jack reddy and it might have been sylvia oh never mind what it was just say i was curious and let it go at that so i lifted up the cam and took in the conversation it was a woman's voice mrs dalzell's I knew it well, and Dr. Fowler's. Hers was trembly and excited. Oh, Dr. Fowler, is that you? It's Mrs. Dalzell, yes, near the junction. My husband's very sick. We've had Dr. Graham, and he says it's appendicitis, and there ought to be an operation. Now, as soon as possible, do you hear me? Then Dr. Fowler, very calm and polite. Perfectly, madam. Oh, I'm so glad. I've been so terribly worried. It's so unexpected. Mr. Dalzell's never had so much as a cramp before, and now— Just wait a minute, Mrs. Dalzell, came the doctor. Let me understand. Graham recommends an operation, you say? Yes, Dr. Fowler, as soon as possible. Something awful may happen if it's not done. And Dr. Graham suggested you, if you'd be so kind. I know it's a favor, but I must have the best for my husband. Won't you come, please, to oblige me? Dr. Fowler asked some questions which I needn't put down, and said he'd come, and if necessary operate. Then they talked about the best way for him to get there, the doctor wanting to know if the main line to the junction wouldn't be the quickest. But Mrs. Dalzell said she'd been consulting the timetable, and there'd be no train from Longwood to the junction before two, and if he wouldn't mind, and would come in his auto by the Firehill Road, he'd get there several hours sooner. He agreed to that, and it wasn't fifteen minutes after he'd hung up that I saw him swing past my window in his car, driving himself. Later on in the afternoon I got another call from the Dalzells for Mapleshade, and heard the doctor tell Mrs. Fowler that the operation had been a serious one, and that he would stay there for the night, and probably all the next day. Before that second call, about two hours after the first one, there came another message for Mapleshade that before a week was out, 
was in most every paper in the country, and that lifted me right into the middle of the Hesketh mystery. It was near one o'clock, an hour when works slack around Longwood, everybody being either at their dinner or getting ready for it. The call was from a public pay station and was in a man's voice, a voice I didn't know, but that because of my curiosity I listened to as sharp as if it was my lover's asking me to marry him. The man wanted to see Miss Sylvia, and after a short wait I heard her answer, very gay and cordial, and evidently knowing him at once without any questions. If she'd said one word to show who he was, things afterward would have been very different, but there wasn't a single phrase that you could identify him by. All anyone could have caught was that they seemed to know each other very well. He began by telling her it was a long time since he'd seen her, and wanting to know if she'd come to town on Monday and take lunch with him at Sherry's, and afterward go to a concert. Monday, she said, very slow and soft, the day after tomorrow? No, I can't make any engagement for Monday. Why not? he asked. She didn't answer right off, and when she did, though her voice was so sweet, there was something sly and secret about it. I've something else to do. Can't you postpone it? She laughed at that, a little soft laugh that came bubbling through her words. No, I'm afraid not. Must be something very interesting. Um, maybe so. You're very mysterious. Can't I be told what it is? Why should you be told? That riled him. I could hear it in his voice. As a friend, or if I don't come under that head, as a fellow who's got the frosty mitt and wants to know why. I don't think that's any reason. I have no engagement with you, and I have with someone else. Just tell me one thing. Is it a man or a woman? She began to laugh again, and if I'd been the man at the other end of the wire, that laugh would have made me wild. Which do you think? she asked. I don't think. I know. And I knew that he was mad. Well, if you know, she said as sweet as pie, I needn't tell you any more. I'll say good-bye. No, he shouted. Don't hang up. Wait. What do you want to torment me for? Then he got sort of coaxing. It isn't kind to treat a fellow this way. Can't you tell me who it is? No, that's a secret. You can't know a thing till I choose to tell you, and I don't choose now. If I come over Sunday afternoon, will you see me? What time? Any time you say. I'm your humble slave, as you know. I'm going out about seven. Where? That's another secret. I think a child listening to that conversation would have seen he was getting madder every minute, and yet he was so afraid she'd cut him off that he had to keep it under and talk pleasant. Look here, he said, I've something I want to say to you awfully. If I run over in my car and get there around six-thirty, can you see me for a few minutes? 
She didn't answer at once. Then she said slow, as if she was undecided, "'Not at the house.' "'I didn't mean at the house. Say, in Maple Lane, by the gate. I won't keep you more than five or ten minutes.' Six-thirty's rather late.' "'Well, any time you say.' "'Can't you be here exactly at six-fifteen?' "'If that's a condition.' "'It is. If you're late, you won't find me. I'll be gone.' and she began to laugh again, taking my secret with me. I'll be there on the dot. Very well, then. You can come, at the gate just as the clock marks one quarter after six. And maybe, if you're good, I'll tell you the secret. Good-bye until then. Try not to be too curious. It's a bad habit, and I've seen signs of it in you lately. Good-bye. Before he could say another word, she disconnected. I leaned back in my chair, thinking it over. What was she up to? What was the secret? And who was the man? Run over in his car. That looked like someone from one of the big estates. How many of them had she buzzing around her? And then, for all I was so downhearted, I couldn't help smiling to think of those two supposing they were talking so secluded, and an east-side tenement girl taking it all in. Little did I guess then that me breaking the rules that way, instead of destroying me, was going to—but that doesn't come in here. And now I come to Sunday the 21st, a date I'll never forget. It seemed to me afterward that nature knew of the tragedy and prepared for it. The weather was duller and grayer than it had been on Saturday, not a breath of air stirring, and the sky all mottled over with clouds, dark and heavy-looking. A full moon was due, and as I went to the exchange I thought of the sweethearts that had dates to walk out in the moonlight and how disappointed they'd be. Things weren't cheerful at the exchange, either. I found Minnie Trail, the night operator, as white as a ghost, saying she felt as if one of her sick headaches was coming on, and if it did, would I stay on overtime. I knew those headaches. They ran along sometimes till eight or nine. I told her to go right home, to bed, and I'd hold the fort till she was able to relieve me. We often did turns like that, one for the other. It's one of the advantages of being in a small country office. No one picks on you for acting human. About ten I had a call from Anne Hennessy. Have you got anything on for this evening, Molly? I have not. This is Longwood, not Gay Paris. Then I'll come round to Galway's about seven, and we'll go to the Gilt Edge for supper. I want to talk to you. The Gilt Edge lunch was where I took my meals— a nice clean little joint close to the office, but I didn't know when I'd get my supper that night, so I called back. That's all right, sister, but come to the exchange. Minnie's head's on the blink, and I'll stay on here late. Anything up? Yes, I don't want to talk about it over the wire. There's been another row here, yesterday morning. It's horrible. I can't stand it. I'll tell you more this evening. So long. I put my elbows on the table and sat forward thinking. 
if you'd asked me a year ago what i wanted most in the world i'd have said money but i'd learnt considerable since then money don't do it i said to myself look at the fowlers with their jewels and their millions scrapping till even the housekeeper on a fancy salary with a private bath can't stand it and there came up in my mind the memory of the east side tenement where i was raised i thought of my poor father most killed with work and my mother eking things out doing house-cleaning and never a hard word to each other or to me the night settled down early black dark and very still at seven ann hennessy came in and sat down by the radiator which was making queer noises with the heat coming up supper times like dinner few calls so i turned round in my chair ready for a good talk and asked about the trouble at mapleshade oh it was another quarrel yesterday morning at breakfast and with harper the butler hearing every word he said it was the worst they'd ever had he's a self-respecting high-class servant and was shocked sylvia and the doctor again yes and poor mrs fowler crying behind the coffee-pot the same old subject oh of course it's young reddy this time sylvia's been out a good deal this autumn in her car several times she's been gone nearly the whole day when the doctor questioned her she'd either be evasive or sulky on friday someone told him they'd seen her far up on the turnpike with jack reddy in his racer i fired up i couldn't help it why should he be mad about that isn't mr reddy good enough for her i think he is i told you before i thought the best thing she could do would be to marry him but she looked round to see that no one was coming in don't say a word of what i'm going to tell you i have no right to repeat what i hear as an employee but i'm worried and i don't know what's the best thing to do mrs fowler has as good as told me that her husband's lost all his money and it's sylvia that's running mapleshade and what i think is that the doctor doesn't want her to marry any one it isn't her he minds losing it's thirty thousand a year but when she comes of age she can do what she wants and if he makes it so disagreeable she won't want to live there that's two years off yet he may recoup himself in that time oh i see but he can't do any good by fighting with her molly you're a wise little woman of course he can't but he doesn't know it he treats that hot-headed high-spirited girl like a child of five mark my words there's going to be trouble at mapleshade i thought of the telephone message i'd overheard the day before and it came to me suddenly what the secret might be could sylvia have been planning to run away i didn't say anything it's natural to me and you get trained along those lines in the telephone business and i sat turning it over in my mind as anne went on i'd leave to-morrow only i'm so sorry for mrs fowler she's as helpless as a baby and seems to cling to me the other day she told me about her first marriage how her husband didn't care for her but was crazy about sylvia 
That's why he left her almost all his money. I wasn't listening much, still thinking about the secret. If she was running away, was she going alone or with Jack Reddy? My eyes were fixed on the window, and I saw, without noticing particular, the down train from the city draw into the station, and then Jim Donahue run along the platform swinging a lantern. As if I was in a dream, I could hear Anne. I call it an unjust will, only two hundred thousand dollars to his wife and five million to his daughter. But if Sylvia dies first, all the money goes back to Mrs. Fowler. The train pulled out, snorting like a big animal. Jim disappeared, then presently I saw him open the depot door and come slouching across the street. I knew he was headed for the exchange, thinking Minnie Trail was there, he being a widower with a crush on Minnie. He came in and, after he'd got over the shock of seeing me, turned to Anne and said, I've just been putting your young lady on the train. Anne gave a start and stared at him. Miss Sylvia, she said. That's her said Jim, warming his coat-tails at the radiator. I could see Anne was awful surprised and was trying to hide it. "'Who is she with?' she asked. "'No one. She went up alone and said she was going to be away for a few days. Where is she going?' Anne gave me a look that said, "'Keep your mouth shut,' and turned quiet and innocent to Jim. "'Just for a visit to friends. She's always visiting people in New York and Philadelphia. Jim stayed around a while, gabbing with us, and then went back to the station. When the door shut on him, we stared at each other with our eyes round as marbles. "'Oh, Molly,' Anne said, almost in a whisper, "'it's just what I've been afraid of.' "'You think she's lighting out?' "'Yes, don't you see? The doctor being at the Dalzell's has given her the chance. Where would she go? Heaven send she hasn't done anything foolish. But this morning she sent Virginie, that French woman, up to the village for something on Sunday when all the shops are shut. The housemaid told me they'd been trying to find out what it was, and Virginie wouldn't tell. Oh, dear, could she have gone off with someone? We were talking it over in low voices when a call came. It was from Mapleshade to the Dalzells. As I made the connection, I whispered to Anne what it was, and she whispered back, Listen! I did. It was from Mrs. Fowler, all breathless and almost crying. She asked for the doctor, and when he came, burst out, Oh, Dan, something's happened, something dreadful. Sylvia's run away. I could hear the doctor's voice, small and distant, but quite clear. "'Go slow now, Connie. It's hard to hear you. Did you say Sylvia's run away?' Then Mrs. Fowler said, trying to speak slower, "'Yes, with Jack Reddy. We've been hunting for her, and we've just found a letter from him on her desk. Do you hear? Her desk? In the top drawer? It told her to meet him at seven in the lane.' and go with him in his car to Bloomington. Bloomington? That's a hundred and fifty miles off. I can't help how far it is. That's where the letter said he was going to take her. 
It said they'd go by the turnpike to Bloomington and be married there, and we can't find Virginie. They've evidently taken her with them. I see. By the turnpike, did you say? Yes. Can't you go up there and meet them and bring her back? Yes. Keep cool now. I'll head them off. What time did you say they left? The letter said he'd meet her in the lane at seven, and it's a little after eight now. Have you time to get up there and catch them? Time to burn. On a night like this, Reddy can't get round to the part of the pike where I'll strike it under three and a half to four hours. But can you go? Can you leave your case? Yes, Dalzell's improving. Graham can attend to it. Now don't get excited. I'll have her back home sometime tonight and not a word to anybody. We don't want this to get about. We'll have to shut the mouth of that fool of a French woman, but I'll see to that later. Don't see anyone. Go to your room and say nothing. Just as the message was finished, Minnie Trail came in. I made the record of it and then got up asking her, as natural as you please, how she felt. Anne did the same and you'd never have thought to hear us sympathizing with her that we were just bursting to get outside. When we did, we walked slow down the lane, me telling her what I'd heard. All the time I was speaking I was thinking of Sylvia and Jack Reddy tearing away through that still black night, flying along the pale line of the road, flashing past the light of farms and country houses, swinging down between the rolling hills and out by the open fields till they'd see the glow of bloomington low down in the sky it was anne who brought me back to where i was she suddenly stopped short staring in front of her and then turned to me why how can she be eloping with reddy by the turnpike when jim donahue saw her get on the train End of chapter three